Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. It was the day I got married. And I think I had not eaten any food the whole day. I was just exhausted. And she said, you know what? I'm going to treat you like a little child today. I'm going to feed you a meal. And she got this bowl of steaming white rice, added a lot of ghee to it. And she just passed away a few months after I got married. So it was also one of those last memories of her for me. Archana Pidatala translated her grandmother's 1974 cookbook, which chronicled the cooking of Southeast India. From a simple carrot stir-fry to a tangy peanut stew and whole tomatoes in a spicy curry, this is a fresh take on regional Indian cuisine that makes perfect sense for the modern American kitchen. But before we get to my conversation with Archana, I speak with Susan Bright. Bright's new book is Feast for the Eyes, the story of food and photography, which explores the history of food photography from recipe booklets and magazine ads to artists who photograph fried eggs on bathroom floors and fanciful cakes and pastries posed in a bedroom. Susan, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. Feast for the Eyes, the story of food photography. Uh, Actually, I wanted to be a photographer coming out of college, and then I realized how hard it was and decided to do something else for a living. 
But uh, you say somewhere you, you were quoted saying food is about power, pleasure, health, and status. So when you think about food photography starting back in the 19th century, what is food photography? Yeah, I think what it's important to say is this book is not about food photography. It's about how food has been photographed, which is a very kind of subtle difference. And the way I think of it is the way the what this book does is look at all the way that photography touches our lives and all the way that food touches our lives as well. And that might be through art or cookbooks or journalism or fashion. So that's how I approached the book. You know, you mentioned fashion. I always thought that fashion photography and food photography have a lot in common. Uh, Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I think actually still life with food is having a really great moment because fashion has always stolen the limelight. It's always been the sexy thing. And now food photography, commercial food photography is so good. And it's borrowing lots of strategies from art and there's a seesawing between very slick commercial practice and artistic practice as well. So I think they really do have a lot in common. And it's amazing how often that food appears within fashion shoots as well, from Helmut Newton to Guy Bourdin, right through to very contemporary work as well. So let's just go back and start at the beginning. You said the advent of color photography in publishing was brought to the UK by emigres from Germany. Uh, just, I thought that was interesting. So how did color photography get started in the UK originally? Well, it it was at a, a really kind of pivotal moment, especially in Germany, where publishing houses were pushing this three-carbro process. So it's that color that we now associate with maybe Hollywood or Technicolor. And then when the war broke out, all many of those artists who are influenced by avant-garde practices came to America and came to the UK as well. So publishing houses like Thames and Hudson were really advanced in their color publishing. And people like Nicholas Murray took those skills to America and started working for magazines like McCall's. And just this sudden shift, they could produce these amazing photographs, whereas magazines before were black and white. And the food just like popped off the page. And it just re- revolutionized it. And, and as you said, this is sort of a technicolor style. It was very bold in color, right? It, it wasn't subtle. No, no, there was nothing subtle about this at all. And also, I think it's interesting that it wasn't Americans doing it. It was Europeans who were trying to assimilate. So they were creating an, an America. It was a fantasy of what America looked like. So it was bold. It was big. It was excessive and abundant and very fake to our eyes now because that food was being photographed under great big lights it would have melted within seconds so let's just take that part this is food photography used in service of selling product uh Mm. i remember the betty crocker's picture cookbook you have this in your book of 1950 sort of this exuberance about preparing food i'm not sure it was very appetizing but that that was really a hallmark book, isn't it? I mean, still is today. It's it's a very unusual work. Yeah, it's a really, really important book. And it was sold uh, mainly to young women when they got married so that they had a guide for their families. And also it's a produce book. It's not a cookbook. It was selling. But it is extraordinary. It's sticky and lovely and lush and beautiful 
And they're like art pieces to me. I think they're the most extraordinary spreads because they make, to European eyes, I don't think they make much sense as meals. They're just like epic moments, epic breakfasts, epic picnics. <laughs> and, you know, why have one piece of cake when you can have 10 with 10 different frosting? They're, you just want to lick the pages. Well, you're right. Reminded me in an odd way of modernist cuisine. Yeah. You know, and the absolute strangest thing in the entire book, Feast for the Eyes, is something called meat choy. Now, <laughs> I'll let you talk about it, but this was a piece of performance art in the early 1960s, uh, first performed in Paris. Me, yeah, Meat Joy was a, a feminist performance. And food is often used in feminism because obviously it's associations with women and domesticity and women's role in the kitchen is very strong. So it's a great signifier to be able to comment on something. And... In the book, it's a still from the video, which is this kind of bacchanalian ritual of food being rubbed over bodies and it's black and white. So it's it has a, that fantastic kind of 70s performance feel to it. And the, the people aren't naked. They're wearing kind of strange tights, which you can't actually see in the photograph. But there's dead chickens being rubbed over them, sausage. So the actual performance was not just a visual one, but also one you could smell. Because raw food and obviously raw meat has a very particular smell to it. So the audience would have been brought into this performance as well. It's really about flesh and the body. And it's kind of funny as well when you see the um, ecstatic wilderness of... Uh, these people and their performance. So at the beginning of this interview, I mentioned that you said food is about a number of things, but about power. How's food about power or food photography about power? Excuse me. I think a, a really great example of that is someone like Cindy Sherman, who where she uses food in the most obvious way to show that not eating is about power. It's, um, it's about control and what you put in your body and what you don't put in your body is a very powerful way of controlling how people look at you, how people think about you, controlling your shape. And she really kind of takes that and the picture in the book is of a beach scene, but it's a very dystopian beach scene. There's some vomit, there's a reflection of a woman in the glasses. This is not a beach babe who kind of sips on a cola. This is a woman who has had these images thrust at her and she's kind of vomited it all up again. So that's taking it to an extreme to show how food can be, you can control it and also how it can control you. So... Let me get your advice. Uh, looking at cookbooks in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of changes in food photography. You know, I'm in the business, uh, and I've noticed that a lot of photographs are really good these days, but they're getting to look alike. You know, very vertical, yeah. the round plate, the very plain background, a lot of color and contrast. Do, do you see a trend in food photography and cookbooks, and or do you see things you like and things you don't like? Yeah, I think I think the last 20 years is a really interesting time to look at within cookbooks because 20 years ago there was a shift to much more kind of documentary photography 
And this is when I was teaching myself to cook and I was going to look at people like Nigel Slater and uh, the River Cafe books and they were different. They looked different to me. They had the pictures of the chefs in, which now, of course, they all do. But at that time, it seemed a little bit different. And the plates were messy. And they read more like art books. And that seemed very exciting to me. And that has just kind of developed and developed and developed and become much more stylized. During this time, you've also got the internet came about and food blogging, where the photographs do have a certain kind of look. They're, they're very wholesome, bit kinfolky, and that has definitely tipped over into the cookbook. What I'm seeing now, which I don't particularly like, is the influence of Instagram. So a lot of cookbooks have a retro feel to them. They look like they've had filters put over them, and they're slightly more diaristic in the way that social networking is. Susan Bright, thank you so much. Uh, Feast for the Eyes, the story of food photography, great book, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. That was Susan Bright, author of Feast for the Eyes, the story of food and photography. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? You bet. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Kat from Alexandria. Hi, Kat. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? We're pretty good. Yes, Sarah, we are. Good. We're very good. I'm good? Yeah. We're both good. Okay. Life is good. <laughs> How can we help you? Well, this summer, I pickled some beets, and it turned out great. Yeah. But the juice of the beets, the remaining juice, just seems too good to waste. It was such a good brine. I feel bad dumping it down the drain. Is there something I can do? Yeah, hard cook some eggs and throw them in. Ooh. Then you'll have, you'll have beautifully colored eggs. You know, I would use that brine anywhere you sort of like acid, as long as your family doesn't mind pink food. I mean, one thing that's already pink anyway is when you cook a red cabbage and usually you add a little acid to it, add your, you know, beet brine and then uh, cover it and stew it. It'll be yummy. But how about throwing it into mac and cheese, pink mac and cheese, pink potato oh, salad? Oh, no. Oh, no, Sarah. No, because you need acid in those things. It's fun. Yeah. Just add it to your yeah. dishes that need acid. What? You, you gave her a really good answer, like use it with cabbage. I know, but... And then, then you said mac and cheese. No, <laughs> a little acid in there, but potato salad could really use yeah, it. Yeah, potato salad could. Yeah. That's good. You know, I have to tell you, I add lemon juice to almost every single recipe I make as a pointer upper at the end. So I could see using this yeah, pickled beet juice as a pointer upper at the end. You know, make something brighter. Oh, it'd be great if you made a beef stew, add a little bit of it at the end. Because it's going to keep forever. It's got all that salt and acid yeah, in it. You know, here in Milk Street, we never know what question is going to set Sarah <laughs> off and get her all excited. And it must be pickle brine today. I don't know. I it think is. it's wonderful you pickle your own beets to begin with. Oh, they were delicious. Anyway, anyway Kat, I hope that gave you some yeah. ideas. Hard-cooked eggs. That's mine. Pink food. All right. Yeah. That's mine. Cool. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Liz Boring. How can we help you? Well, I was recently given this beautiful cast iron muffin pan 
And the cups are in these shapes of intricate vegetables. And so I've seasoned the pan once, and I made muffins now twice, and I cannot get them to come out whole. This is my first piece of cast iron bakeware, and I'm wondering if there's a different approach for seasoning the bakeware, and then if there's a way that I can identify recipes that maybe would be more likely to actually come out in these beautiful shapes. Well, cast iron's great in a skillet or Dutch oven because you're trying to brown foods, and it retains heat well. Uh, it chars vegetables, cook steaks, etc. You don't really need that level, nor do you want that level of heat retention necessarily when making a muffin. So okay. I don't think cast iron actually gives you any advantage. Any decent muffin pan's probably just fine. The other thing is you'd have to season it properly, which means right. that once you said once, well, you're going to have to season it like eight or ten times, which means heat it up in the very hot oven, get it really hot, make sure you get big oven mitts, take it out, coat it with oil, rub it in with paper towels, let it mm-hmm. cool, and repeat. And unlike a skillet, it's a pain. This is all those right. little nooks and crannies. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I think you should hang this on the wall. Oh, she's so excited <laughs> no, about but, it, though, Chris. Okay, well, then, okay, then you're going to have to do that. Then you're going to have to season it just before you use it. Right. You're going to want to heat it up and rub it with oil. You might even be able to spray it with a baking spray. Actually, you know what? Do you think? I would try a baking spray in this, hmm. and I would definitely spray it well before you use it. Try that. Okay. But you're going to need a lot of grease in there, and you have to have a well-seasoned pan because you want to build up that layer in between the metal right. and the muffin batter. Would I need to, after making it, just season it once? Once it's seasoned, every time you use it, Season it just before you use it. Okay. And it's easy to do with a skillet, less easy in a muffin tin. But yes, you'd have to reseason it every time just to add back to that layer. Okay. Like, am I looking for a specific type of recipe that's going to be more likely to come out? I would say the less sugar in the batter, the better, because sugar is what's going to stick. Huh. When it melts and caramelizes, it gets very sticky. I would say something savory. We just did these Brazilian little cheese puffs. They're sort of like Gougere, except I think better. They would actually bake up very nicely in a muffin tin. Sarah's about to throw something at me. No, 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 no. They're very good. I I had that. Delicious. Wonderful. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Something like that or popovers, you know, in muffin tins, they would work. They'd probably come out because they have a lot of fat in them, too. And if all else fails, I'll just hang it on the wall. You're going to end up hanging on the wall, but yeah, <laughs> but but try try the savory one. That's got okay. a better shot first. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Thank, Thank you, Liz. Thank you so much. I yep. really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mel Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, I chat with a home cook who spent nine years preserving her grandmother's recipes and translating her cookbook into English. That book is called Five Morsels of Love. Coming up after the break. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? 
are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today, Mill Street welcomes Archana Pidatala. She tested and translated her grandmother's 1974 unfinished cookbook, a collection of recipes from Southeast India. This book, Five Morsels of Love, provides an entirely fresh look at a regional Indian cuisine, from butter chicken to a simple carrot stir-fry, that makes perfect sense for the modern American home kitchen. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where in India did you grow up, and, and where was your grandmother? What, what, what place? I grew up in Andhra Pradesh. My grandmother was from the same state, although we lived in different cities. But most of my early childhood, like for the first four or five years of my early life, I did spend a lot of time with my grandmother. I literally grew up with her, uh, eating her food, listening to her stories, always being with her around in the kitchen mostly because she cooked so much. Could you just describe when you were a kid living with her, uh, sort of a day in the life in terms of the food? So a typical day would begin with breakfast. And in our part of the world, most breakfast, it's, it's savory, and it's mostly idli and dosa. Idli is like a steamed rice cake, and dosa is like a rice crepe. And they're made with fermented batter. And it used to be served with like a lentil soup, which is called sambar, or a chutney, which is usually made with peanuts or coconut. Uh, and once breakfast is out of the door, we would start talking about what would lunch look like. Hmm. Uh, and lunch would be dependent on what the vegetable vendor would come and sell us. So we literally had a vegetable vendor who would come and sell vegetables at our doorstep. Huh. Uh, and lunch is still considered the main meal of the day for us. Uh, it's rice-based. Rice is our staple. There's a lentil dish. Uh, and the lentils could be cooked with greens. It could be cooked with a gourd. Uh, it could just be lentils and tomatoes. So that's a given. And then we have a thin tomato broth called rasam, which is again a staple in an everyday meal. And we have a stir fry, which can be made out of a root vegetable. It could be taro, it could be potatoes, it could be sweet potatoes. And then there's homeset yogurt. So buffalo milk is common from where I come from. So yogurt is always homeset, really thick, really fresh. And this because we come from this state which celebrates pickles and condiments, there's something called podis or spice powders, which are just, you know, very flavorful accompaniments to a main meal. Uh, so that also forms like an everyday part of the meal. And then dinner is more of a supper. It's a lighter meal. It is. It is a lighter meal. Again, it's mostly rice-based. We don't eat that much flatbread from where I come from. So rotis or chapatis are more common in the northern part of India, not so much from where I come from. 
so again it's 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 lighter it's it's similar to lunch but it's it's much lighter we we don't we wouldn't be eating so many different curries uh, with rice so tell me about your grandmother what was her name how did she cook uh what was her life like her name was nirmala and uh, she was only 43 when i was born she was a really young grandmother she was a beautiful lady a fantastic cook she did go to college here so she was way ahead of her times i think she studied history and household arts were her uh, specialties when she went to college but apparently she never cooked till she got married so when she got married i think when she was 19 or 20 is when she started cooking for my grandfather who was in the government service in india and they would travel extensively and she would absorb all the influences from you know wherever they were traveling both in india and abroad and over a period of time she just built her skill just out of pure interest and passion for for cooking she would also do a lot of uh, cooking demonstrations and cooking classes because i think over a period of time word spread that you know nirmala is a really good cook maybe we can learn things from her and people who would come to the classes would actually ask her to write these recipes down into a book and that's how the first book came into being oh i see so the first book that she published in 1974 when she was 37 is a collection of recipes that were very close to her and which you know which she built over a period of time So you said uh at one point that she was working on a cookbook it was unfinished at the point she passed Correct. what what was that book going to be was that a particular style of cooking or a collection of recipes how was it different than what she'd done before So the 1974 book uh, which is called Vanita Vantakalu was mostly home cooking and was mostly andhra cooking which is cooking from our home state The second book she was working on had 350 recipes and it was recipes from all over india recipes from people she knew across india from places she visited and not necessarily like how the first book was so very focused on dishes that we made at home this went over and beyond that so that project never kind of saw the light of the day there was this other thing she, because she was so fluent in english she could write very well she could talk very well she also did want to translate her first book into english and she did start doing that and i think she was more keen to get the english version out ahead of her second telugu book hmm. uh but then you know she was diagnosed with cancer and she was gone in 9 weeks after the diagnosis so it all was she was 69 when she died and it was all very sudden and it was all very unexpected and nobody saw that coming so you know after she died we we were all sitting together and talking one day and we we're like you know there were two things that she really wanted to do one is to do the english book and also bring her second book out at some point and i said you know can i can i complete what she wanted to do and everybody looked at me in the family and said but you don't even cook you don't even know how to cook and i said but i want to try um so that's how the project kind of ended up with me because you know being the oldest grandchild I spent all those early years with her so when i picked the project up i didn't know how to cook i had no idea how to write a book and it took a while it took me 9 years to find my way around in the kitchen cook from the book many times over so the, let's talk about the recipes i noticed that one of the most interesting things is almost every recipe has a separate recipe at the end for a spice flavored oil or ghee 
with mustard seed or whatever you use. So the notion is you bloom spices in oil or other fat and then add it, pour it on the dish or mix it into the dish at the end to add flavor. That's not something we do here, but it seems like a great technique because it's quick, it's fast, and it adds flavor. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're right. So we call that tempering, and it's almost a mandatory step in every dish. So we bloom spices, as you rightly say. It's mostly mustard seeds, cumin seeds, red chilies, garlic in some cases, and Bengal gram and black gram. Uh, And the idea is obviously to add flavor, but it's also very digestive. So, for instance, if we are making a lentil dish, we almost always add asafoetida to the tempering because asafoetida is supposed to help with, uh, with digestion when you're eating a lentil dish. So, just how do you think about rice? How, there's coconut rice. You might use some coconut milk in making it. There's uh, pilafs, etc. Just give us a couple ideas about how you would take a simple thing like rice and dress it up a little bit. So the region I come from is a largely rice-growing region. Uh, We get a particular kind of rice called Sona Masuri. So we don't use basmati for our regular everyday use, unless it's a biryani. Sona Masuri is normally the rice we use. And most days it's just cooked plain, like, you know, boil water, add a little salt and add the raw rice to it and let it cook for like 12 to 13 minutes till it's fully cooked and then you kind of close it and it's nicely fluffed and ready when you're when you sit down for lunch. A couple of ways we could easily dress that up is something called lemon rice that we do here. It's really again a tempering with a squeeze of lime and turmeric and tossed with the rice. There's a recipe in the book for raw mango pulihara which is really what I'm describing. It's, it's, it's rice, but you kind of add a little bit of tang to it. It could be lemon. It could be from grated raw mango. It could even be from grated gooseberries. Anything that can just, you know, give that little pungent flavor. So you grate the mango. Is the mango ripe? or is It's unripe. Yeah, it's unripe. So we kind of peel it off and grate the flesh and then put it into the tempering and then mix it with rice. And it's, it's so delicious. It's so simple and it's so delicious. Another easy way of doing it is the coconut rice, which again comes in the book. But then it's subject to, uh, you know, having fresh coconut available. So you have to grate fresh coconut and literally toss it with the rice with a simple tempering. So it's, again, very flavorful, very fresh. The flavor is very fresh because we literally break the coconut and grate it before we make it. So let's talk about puddings, for example, uh, you know, a milk-based pudding of some kind. How do you make those? Is that just a very simple recipe you can adapt to anything? It's really simple. You kind of boil down milk, let's say, to one-fourth of the quantity you start with. So basically, you're reducing milk slowly so that it's getting condensed, it's developing those caramel nodes, it's creamy, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's becoming delicious in the process. And as it's reducing, you could add rice, which is the most common thing we do. Uh, or you could even add rice and a lentil. Like you could, you could add rice and moong dal, which is split green gram. And you cook it till the rice is fully done. And one big difference is we don't necessarily always use sugar. We huh. use something called jaggery, which is a highly unprocessed form of sugar, very nutritious, uh, it's obtained from sugarcane. So literally sugarcane juice boiled over a lot of time becomes into this molasses-like fudge. Uh, and, and that's what we use 
for a lot of our sweet dishes. So five morsels of love. Why not six or four? Was there, what is the title referring to? The title is referring to the five grandchildren. So okay. my grandmother's five grandchildren. And every time we sit down, even today, when we get together and talk, a lot of it has to do with the food that our mama cooked for us, that my grandmother cooked for us. So when I was doing this book, I realized that, you know, all these other four morsels were as much a part of the book as I am, uh, because it is shared memories across all five of us. So when I was trying to find a title for the book, I, I suddenly came upon this idea of, you know, it should represent all of us. So it's the five grandchildren kind of, uh, it's paying a tribute to my grandmother. So after she passed, she actually had these recipes all written down somewhere in, in a book form or they were on recipe cards or memory. Uh, wh- what was the process like of collecting them? So there was the book uh, which she wrote, which is published and which exists today. Uh, I mean, it's out of print, but I have a copy. But as I said, the book I ended up writing, Five Morsels of Love, is largely based on her original book. But I did add in recipes which did not make an appearance in the original book. Because for me, they were, you know, they were very close to what I grew up eating. Uh, And I removed some recipes from her original book, which I had no memory of. So I wanted to be this a very acute representation of what I grew up eating. She would write down everything on, you know, on medical prescriptions, wedding invitations, little bits of paper, and all these were well preserved too. Like she didn't just write and just, you know, scatter them away. They were all preserved in boxes. So it was a combination of both. It was using the book that she had put together, but also searching through all the other materials she had left behind. Looking back, cooking with your grandmother, was there a moment that, uh, I'm sure there are many, but is there one particular moment that really sticks in your memory, something that you very fondly remember about your time with her? I do have one. It was the day I got married, um, and she was very excited about the whole wedding and, you know, having the entire family around. And I think I had not eaten any food the whole day. I was just exhausted. And she said, you know what? I'm going to treat you like a little child today. I'm going to feed you a meal. And she got this bowl of steaming white rice, added a lot of ghee to it. And there is a horse gram stew that I mentioned in the book, uh, which is my absolute favorite dish. So she added a little bit of that horse gram stew, and she actually fed a meal to me on that day. And, Mm. And she just passed away a few months after I got married. So it was also one of those last memories of her for me. Well... She cooked for you, you know, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, that's That's the sweetest thing someone can do for somebody else, right? I agree. That was Archana Pidatala, author of Five Morsels of Love. You know, in the late 1980s, I spent some time in Sweden where I was amused by the local take on America. For Swedes, their view of America was based entirely on American television. For American cooks, our view of the world was based on a handful of cookbooks. Julie Sani for India, Diana Kennedy for Mexico, and Paula Wolford for Morocco. One cookbook for each cuisine. But when my Swedish friends finally came to America, they were amazed and delighted to find that the streets of San Francisco were not crime-ridden and that America was actually a very diverse and culturally interesting place. So now it's our turn. India is not just curry and Morocco is more than tagine. 
In fact, it's not a small world after all. Right now, I'm heading over to Kitchen of Milk Street to chat with our editor, J.M. Hirsch, about this week's recipe. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Um, you were in Tunisia not too long ago, and I know that you enjoy um, a cocktail. Here and there. And uh, you sent back some photos of these late-night bars you were in, or supper clubs, or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> uh, but you discovered, other than the cocktail, you discovered this dish, uh, Lob Lobby. I heard of it. It was really spectacular. So let's start with what is loblobby? It sounds simpler than it is. Basically, it is chickpea and bread soup. But that doesn't nearly do justice to how rich and wonderful a soup this is. It started out as a breakfast food for laborers. They'd get up early, want a robust meal to start the day. They'd go to these little shops, get a bowl of it, move on. However, it's now morphed into a late-night party food that you can get pretty much 24 hours a day. I wandered into one of these shops, and... You order by way of telling them how many bowls you want. They give you a bowl, and the person behind the counter gives you a bunch of stale baguettes. You have to take that bowl of stale baguettes back to a table, fight through the crowd, and tear it up into pieces. Now, apparently the art is in how big a piece you tear your your bread in. Each person likes their bread torn differently. Then you bring your bowl of torn bread back to the counter where they start ladling in rich broth, cooked chickpeas, tons of cumin, tons of harissa. They crack into it a soft-boiled egg, and then they just add whatever else you want, like raw onions, capers. It is amazing. But in Tunisia, it's not done quite yet because then you can either do this yourself or ask them to do it. They take two forks or two knives, and they mash it, (laughs) and it ends up looking like oatmeal and then you're good to eat. You can have them put on more harissa if you want. I got to say, it looked kind of gross, but I took it back to my table. I ate it, and it was amazing. It was so rich and, and so saucy and, and fiery with the harissa, but also kind of salty and briny from the capers, and the cumin, was, it was outrageously good. I knew that this was a Milk Street recipe, minus perhaps the mashing it into an oatmeal consistency. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh Sometimes it's really hard to adapt a recipe from another country, but this sounds like, you know, water, chickpeas, bread. I mean, it doesn't sound that hard to do here, right? Yeah, no, we actually, it wasn't that big of a deal. We did have a few things that we had to adapt. And the first, of course, was that we weren't going to mash our soup into mush. And it just wasn't very appealing, even though it was delicious. The second one is most of us don't have stale baguettes laying around. Now, the shop I was in probably had 100 of them behind the counter. Most of us don't do that. So we decided we were going to go in a different route, take some fresh bread, and skillet fry them with a little bit of oil and turn them into really delicious croutons. That would be the base of our soup. Then you add, we cooked some dried chickpeas, made a delicious broth with those chickpeas, and the assembly is simple. And frankly, this is a different way of thinking about soup for us. Most of us think of soup as we pile the ingredients in the pot and we let it simmer. In this case, all the parts are cooked separately and then are assembled by the person eating it. And so you make your croutons, you fill your bowl with your croutons. You make your chickpeas and broth, you ladle that over the croutons at the table, And then you start adding all the other things that you want to add. You can add the capers, green olives, parsley, cilantro, and of course cumin. And the most important thing, frankly, is the soft-cooked egg because that just adds a creamy, rich body to it. And the end result is just the richest, most wonderful, and yet simple and clean soup that I've ever eaten. Yeah, and one thing I've eaten, the Milk Street version, is the croutons, which take about six minutes to make uh, in, in a skillet. 
Um, they give you a little texture and crunch to it, which I really like. So it wasn't all, as you said, like porridge. Exactly. It actually had some texture. It well. had a lot of texture. And that's, you know, there's actually a lot going on in this soup. You know, again, you have the, you have the soft cooked egg, you have the croutons, you have the, the, the olives and the capers, and, and the harissa, of course, adds a big punch of spice to it. And it was, it's delicious. There's so much going on, so much happening. And there's different layers of both texture and flavor. It's a great soup. Well, that's why we call it here at Milk Street the best soup in the world. Indeed. That's a superlative, but I think it probably <laughs> will hold up. JM, thank you so much. Thank you. You can find our recipe for Love Lobby, my story, and all our photos at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host Sarah Moulton and Dr. Aaron Carroll reviews the research on drinking and health right after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to open the phone lines and answer your calls about cooking or anything else you'd like to know about with my co-host, Sarah Malton. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hey, this is Colleen. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Good, Good. where are you calling from? I'm calling from Walsall, South Dakota. Oh, okay. How can we help you? Um, I have a question about salt and baking. Since I was a kid, my mom's always told me to omit salt from all the recipes that I use. And um, as I've been experimenting more and more... Wait, 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 wait. we got to stop you there. Your mom said <laughs> to take out the salt? Yes, she said do not use salt. <laughs> and what was her logic? I think it's she's been raised to believe that salt's no, really bad. So. No. <laughs> oh, dear. That's a horrible you thing know. to do. Actually, the statistic is 95% of your salt intake comes from foods purchased outside the home. Processed wow. foods, snack foods, fast foods, restaurant foods, very little of your salt comes from home cooking. And secondly, without salt, food doesn't taste like anything. So besides that, you're great. Well, also baking, it does play a role in yeah. baking. You know, bread needs it, and it counterbalances the sugar and sweet recipes. You've been cooking for all these years without adding salt, or you got to a point in your life where you realized that that was not good advice? I got to a point where I realized that's not good advice. Good for you. Okay, good. I feel better. Good, yeah. So she said it with baking recipes, and that was pretty much my question was, how does salt play a role in baking? And also, the kind of the chemistry behind it, to know if there's more than just flavor when you do add salt to a recipe for breads and cakes and such. 
Well, there's a bunch of science about strengthening gluten and browning and some other things. But the fact of the matter is the real answer is that baked goods without salt just taste awful. It's all about flavor, and it amplifies flavor. Actually, I've baked bread once or twice. I make a rustic loaf, a boule, uh, and I forgot to put the salt in because I don't put it in at the beginning. I put it in towards the end, (laughs) and I forgot to put it in. It was almost inedible. It uh, influences the structure of the whole thing, too. You know, it's important because it sort of retards the yeast, which means you get a slower rise and more flavor, and it helps to strengthen the gluten structure. But, you know, I know that bakers believe in adding salt. To, okay. um, to bread and, you know, for what it does to the structure of the dough and also browning. That must have been a very also long for flavor. childhood, though, without salt. <laughs> I mean, how did you survive? I'm really She interested. didn't know any differently. Oh, come no, on. No, but people who don't use salt say you taste the other flavors more without the salt. Yeah. It's like being blind and then seeing all of a sudden, you know. All of a sudden the yeah. colors show up. Well, at least you're on to the next phase of your life, which is a tastier phase. Yes. So. Yes. I agree. Pauline, thank you for calling. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank Enjoy you. your day. I appreciate your answers. Sure. Okay. Take care. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Tim from Melrose, Mass. So how can we help you? First of all, let me say I'm such a pleasure to talk to both of you. I'm a huge fan, and you guys really literally taught me how to cook. So Thank you. Thank you. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> My family thanks you as well. Secondly, I'm a big fisherman, and particularly I like to go striper fishing. And one of the baits that you use for striper is live mackerel, which is kind of a cool fish, and they're they're fun to catch even on their own. But often at the end of the day, you still have some live mackerel left. And I know you can turn it into sushi, but I didn't know if Mm. there was anything else I could do with it, you know, other than freeze it and feed it to the fish the next day. My experience with mackerel is fairly limited. I was fishing once off Marblehead, actually, and on the way back, having been totally unsuccessful, Someone gave us a huge mackerel so we could claim that we we got this big fish. And that was delicious because it was fresh. It wasn't as fishy and strong as I thought it would be. So you have live mackerel. One thing oh, yeah, you, same. It, yeah, it would it's be good. the same thing. It would be fresh. Throw it on the grill. I would say mackerel does really well with a strong sauce or pepper or something powerful to go with it. Lots of acid. Yeah, lots of acid. It's high in uh, the fatty three acids, you know, that make fish fishy, like bluefish is another one that you have to basically Mm -hmm. catch it and cook it immediately because it just gets fishier as it sits around. We're not huge bluefish fans. We'll throw some like Jamaican jerk seasoning on it to try to cover up the Fishiness. Well, mackerel's pretty fishy, too, but I think acid, you know, lots of lemon juice, lime juice, you know. Okay. These are bait mackerel. How big are they? They're probably, you know, it depends, but seven, eight inches, nine inches. But I would grill it outside because the thing about these uh, fatty fish is they will stink up your whole house, so it smell like fish. Well, thank you. That's excellent because my wife would not be happy if she came home to that. Right. Okay, Throw them on the grill? Yes. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for going. All right. Bye. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is called Grams, Not Cuffs. Now, if you want to improve your baking, and everybody does, the quickest way to do that is to weigh your ingredients, especially flours, instead of using volume measurements. Now, here at Milk Street, we've done a national survey of the weight of a cup of flour, and found that a dozen different places have, in fact, a dozen different answers. Now, that's because how you scoop or add flour to the measuring cup actually makes a huge difference in how much 
that cup of flour weighs. So to solve that problem, we averaged all of the national results, we did our own measurements, and then we came up with a table of weights for a dozen different types of flour. One cup of all-purpose, for example, weighs 130 grams. You can access all of our flour weights and our charts at 177milkstreet.com. Do we need to fear that each drink carries serious health risks? Dr. Aaron Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So you've been up to some research uh, as usual, and what have you found? So one of the things I wanted to talk about was cancer and alcohol. A lot of news got made at the end of last year, right actually before Thanksgiving, when uh, the big oncology association released a new report that said that any alcohol at all was going to increase your risk of cancer and that people needed to seriously consider whether to drink at all. And this, of course, caused lots of people to get very concerned and get nervous, but it's important to look a little bit deeper before we make those kinds of decisions about what we're going to eat or drink. That's incredibly bad news. <laughs> For me. Well, it would be yeah. if you sort of just took it at face value. Right. The problem is that, you know, a lot of it is is done by cherry picking. First of all, it's important to know that none of the research that was cited in this report was new. A lot of it has been around for quite some time. And the research that they're relying on certainly does show that heavy drinking is associated with an increased risk of cancer. And, and no one should dispute that. Alcohol misuse and abuse is very bad. Okay. But the research and the evidence against light or moderate drinking is pretty thin. First of all, while it is has some you know small associations with some cancers, it actually has some associations with reduced risks of others. But the you know the oncologic association only talked about the ones that increase the risk. They sort of ignore the ones that decrease the risk. Even when you find a statistically significant increased risk, it is still very small. So breast cancer gets a lot of attention. And they said that even light drinking will raise your risk 4%. But, you know, that's a relative risk. Really what's happening is that, you know, if a 40-year-old woman or a 45-year-old woman has perhaps a, you know, 1.45% chance of developing breast cancer in the next 10 years, if you're a light drinker, it goes up to 1.51. It, it's just not that big of a risk. Plus, again, you can't cherry pick just cancer. There's lots of diseases that you can get. And the same research that shows that light or moderate drinking might increase your risk of cancer shows that it would decrease your risk of heart disease and diabetes and even death. Hmm. And those decreases in the risks of heart disease are bigger than the increases in the risk of cancer. So if you buy into this kind of research, looking at associations, then the benefits that have been proven by research are as great, if not greater, than the harms that might come with respect to cancer. So when you look at all of it together, the story is is a bit more complicated and not nearly as frightening as, as the news would have you believe. Now, on this show a few months ago, you reported that what you just said, that there are benefits to moderate drinking. Mm -hmm. So let's just rehash that really quickly. You're saying that there's a more significant decreased risk of getting diabetes or other heart disease by sure. moderate drinking, which more than covers 
a very small increase in risk of cancer. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So, you know, what most of these studies are what we would call cohort studies, where they take a huge group of people and then they, they follow them over time and they say, and they see what activities they do, such as drinking, and then see what their rates of disease and death are. And you have to follow these sometimes for 10 years or more in order to see some of these outcomes. So some of the studies have shown that people have higher risks of some cancers, but they also show that they have decreased risks of heart disease, decreased risks of diabetes, and even decreased risks of death. Again, let me stress that that's for light or moderate drinking. What we do sometimes is, as physicians even, you know, cancer doctors focus on cancer, so they get freaked out about the cancer. But it's important not to just look at one thing. They have decreased risks of diseases which are much more prevalent. You know, more people die of heart disease in the United States than cancer. So trying to reduce your risk of those diseases is important. Now, I'm not telling everyone to go out and drink as medicine, uh, but certainly if you enjoy the occasional cocktail or if light or moderate drinking is part of your life, then there's no reason to get as panicked as the news might have made you think you should be. So how do you even out all the other lifestyle choices people make? In other words, maybe people who tend to drink more also have other quote-unquote unhealthy habits because that's part and parcel of their you know, approach to life. How do you even out the rest of it? So good researchers, and a lot of the research is good, will do their best to try and account for some of what we, these, which we call confounders, so smoking, exercise, um, family history. Now, some of these studies are better than others in trying to account for these factors, but what you're bringing up is the biggest problem with this type of research in that we can only find associations. We don't know if alcohol is the causal risk. In fact, a lot of the danger from alcohol is with respect to some cancers is thought to be mitigated by also smoking. And that if you remove the smoking effects, that a lot of the risk from alcohol goes away. The best way to figure out if it's the alcohol is to do what we call a randomized controlled trial, right. to take a group of people and then randomly assign some to drink alcohol and some not to, and then see what happens to them over years. We actually have a couple good studies with you know randomized controlled trials with alcohol. Really? And what they showed was that people had reduced risks of diabetes, reduced risks of some heart disease, cholesterol was sometimes improved, even blood pressure sometimes was improved by the alcohol. Huh. The available evidence from randomized controlled trials came much more heavily down on the positive aspects of drinking than the negative. That often gets ignored when we talk about the scary cohort study that comes along. So the, the takeaway would be light to moderate drinking is a wash in terms of your health. There's no strong reason not to drink at all. Is that correct? That's correct. As always, you should make health decisions by weighing the benefits versus the risks. And in this case, it doesn't appear that there's any good reason to avoid light or moderate drinking if you enjoy it. For some strange reason, every time I talk to you, I, I always feel better. <laughs> so, well, that, that's my job. That's what I'm here for. Well, you, you do your job well. Dr. Eric Carroll, thank you so much. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a frequent contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. That's it for this week on Mill Street Radio. You can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Mill Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening.
Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. Mm-hmm.